0: In the first service, I began by, uh, with a story of a, of a sense of, of people that have experienced the eye of a hurricane passing over them. And Jerson Brasola caught me at the door and he said, that happened to me. He said, we were living on the coast of Florida. and I can't remember the hurricane that he mentioned. He said, but the eye of the hurricane passed directly over our house. He said that before that, the storm was terrible. The the wind was howling and the rain was coming down. And it just felt like the entire world was coming to an end. And then there was this eerie peace. He said that he and Betsy and the kids walked outside. And the whole neighborhood walked outside, and when they looked up, they didn't see storm clouds anymore. They saw blue sky, a gentle breeze, birds flying in the air where they had been hunkering down and taking shelter because of the storm. I think that this part of John chapter 18 is kind of the eye of the storm in Jesus' experience. The storm first broke over him in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas betrayed him and brought a squadron of Roman soldiers and guards from the temple to have him arrested. The great fury washed over him as he was tried by Annas and Caiaphas there in the courtyard of the high priest. And then with a predetermined sentence of guilt, they brought him to Pilate. But here at Pilate's headquarters, there's a strange calm. Jesus and Pilate, they face off, not out in front of the angry crowd, hurling insults at Jesus. Instead, this dialogue happens privately between the two men in Pilate's own chambers. Just two men. But despite the peace, the conflict is still real, and the storm has not yet abated. Instead, the worst is about to come. Pilate Is an interesting figure in biblical history. For a long time, cynics and skeptics of Scripture didn't even believe there was such a man named Pilate. They thought that he was someone that the biblical writers had made up. But his name was found on a stone near the coast. And all of a sudden, this Pilate of biblical history was recognized as the Pilate of history as well. Some scholars believe that he might have been a freed slave who was somehow close to the Roman emperor and had managed to snag this governorship of Judea. But to be the governor of Judea was to occupy an undesirable post in an uninspiring region. You know, as the Romans extended their empire... They tried to treat the people that they conquered with some honor, with some dignity. They introduced what is called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And anyone that had fallen under Rome's occupation could generally be assured of financial prosperity and peace and even relative safety from other enemies as long as they submitted to Rome. But the Jews would not submit. They didn't want to have anything to do with Pax Romana because nearly 200 years before this episode, they had nearly succeeded in establishing their own kingdom. The Romans were hated because they intervened and crushed that kingdom and introduced an alternative set of kings over the Israelites who had begun to reign again. The family of Herod, the Edomian, the Edomite, an ancient enemy of of Israel, was established by Rome over the people of Israel. And Pilate became a convenient figurehead toward which all of the hatred of the Jews could be pointed as they thought about the hated Roman Empire. Now, in a situation like that, if you're a statesman, you realize that you've got some fence-mending to do. But Pilate did nothing to assuage the hatred of the people. He would threaten the leading citizens of Israel. He desecrated the temple by setting up the standard of the emperor within the temple... And he even stole money from the treasury to build an aqueduct to bring water into the city. Now, Pilate's insensitivity to his post and to the people that he was supposed to rule, it made him a spectacularly inefficient governor. He was finally fired by the emperor after only 10 years on the job, and he dies in obscurity. But, Pilate has achieved a place of notoriety in history. Each week, for nearly 2,000 years, Christians all over the world recite his name. It's part of the Creed, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So why? Why is the question? Why does Pilate participate in the murder of Jesus? Why does Pilate, knowing everything that he knows about Jesus through this interview, why does he consent to Jesus' crucifixion? After all, in verse 38, we see that Pilate declared him not guilty. He knew that Jesus wasn't actually guilty of the trumped-up charges of sedition and rebellion. Well, some commentators say, well, maybe it's because Pilate was a weak-willed man whose job was in jeopardy. So he acquiesces to the Jewish religious leaders in order to save his job. But I don't think that that's true. Pilate hated the Jews. He was in constant conflict with them. And freeing Jesus would have been the perfect opportunity to poke him in the eye. To say, I'm in charge, you're not, deal with it. He could have asserted his own authority. He could have frustrated his enemies merely by letting this inconsequential country rabbi go. Well, maybe there's a different reason. Maybe he took his job seriously. And he knew that he was a representative of Caesar. And as a representative of the empire, he felt threatened by Jesus' claim of an alternative kingdom. By Jesus' claim that he was a king. I think that this gets closer to the truth. But I think that we also have to see that there is a different reality surrounding this idea. The first thing we see is in verse 33. Je- a Pilate doesn't actually put a whole lot of stock in Jesus' qualifications to be king. The way the word order in John chapter 18 is in the ancient Greek text, it puts the word you in a place of prominence in that verse, verse 33. And so it's not that Pilate is asking Jesus' identity, are you the king of the Jews? He's saying, seriously? You? Wait, you're the king of the Jews? You're the one who is going to establish this alternative kingdom to Rome? This is the kind of scorn that only one nobody who has made a somebody can heap on a fellow nobody. Who can blame him? It's hard to take Jesus' claims of kingship seriously when his people are the ones who deliver him over to be crucified and killed. Your own people. The chief priests. They don't want to have anything to do with you. How can you be a king? I also want you to notice that that Jesus doesn't threaten Pilate. And he doesn't threaten Rome. You know, it's interesting, any time we see in the news some, some great crime has been committed overseas, a crime against humanity, and some country's leaders are hauled before the United Nations Court of International Justice, what's one of the first things those guys always say? Ah, oh, this court has no jurisdiction over me. I'm not subject to the authority of this court. And Jesus, who is claiming the throne of David, he surely should should have said the same thing, right? You Romans are an occupying force. You're an illegitimate government. I don't have to answer to you. But Jesus doesn't dispute Pilate's authority over him. In many ways, what we see in John chapter 18, it's the Apostle Paul who explains it in Romans chapter 13. Pilate is God's servant in this situation. He is appointed by God to exercise legitimate authority over the people. So Jesus doesn't question Pilate's authority, nor does he threaten Caesar. Verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. Just that response itself removes any kind of possibility of an offense against the empire. So why? Why does Pilate crucify Jesus? Why does he conspire with the people that he hates to murder a man that doesn't matter? Simply put, he personally rejects Jesus' claim of kingship. He personally turns away from Jesus' voice. In verse 37, Jesus says, "...For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to My voice." And how does Pilate respond? He responds with a curt dismissal. What is truth? Now friends, that is not the response of a cynic or a skeptic. That is the response of someone who refuses to even acknowledge Jesus' claims. If Pilate had been an honorable public official... He would have immediately freed Jesus and condemned the Jewish religious leaders for bringing these false accusations. But instead, he passes a sentence of death on someone that he knows is innocent. He's not acting as a representative of Caesar. He's acting personally having rejected Jesus' claims of kingship, he will not listen to Jesus' voice, and he will silence that voice. Pilate is representing his own private kingdom. Pilate is refusing Jesus' claim on him. It's at this point in this horrific travesty of justice that this story becomes personal to you and me. The first thing that I want you to see is that it is instructive to us. We all must wrestle with Jesus' claim of kingship. But if we reject Jesus' claim of kingship, there are consequences. We're It's popular to think of Christianity as a a private religion. But Pilate's rejection of Jesus had very public consequences. It led to other terrible choices. In verse 39, he tells the Jewish leaders, he says, You have this, this custom, this tradition of freeing a prisoner at Passover. Do you want me to free the king of the Jews? And they called out for Barabbas. And Barabbas, in verse 40, we read, is a robber. Well, that's not a great word for it, because Barabbas wasn't just convicted of breaking and entering. Barabbas was a rebel and an insurrectionist. He was everything that Jesus was not. And yet in Pilate's mind, this is an equal choice. An innocent man or a guilty felon. How did you get there, Pilate? Romans 1 is true. Once you reject God, the hearts of men become foolish and darkened. Their thinking, Paul says in Romans 1, is futile. You see, there are no mild responses to Jesus. One cannot be confronted by his claims of kingship and simply smile and say, well, isn't that special? I'm so glad that you found religion meaningful in your life. I think that's really helpful for you. Folks, that's not intellectually honest. Pilate retreats. He retreats from Jesus' claim of kingship. He doesn't ignore it. He sees it for the threat that it is. Not against the empire, but against him personally. If you are tepidly responding to Jesus, it means that you are not really listening to Jesus. Jesus. You have to treat Jesus like Pilate did. You have to say that Jesus is no better than Barabbas. He's no better, even as an innocent man, than a guilty felon who must be stopped. Or you must bow the knee and worship. You must bow the knee in love and commitment. And restructure your entire life around this one who claims to be king. See, this is the reality for all of us, folks. Every single one of us must come to wrestle with the fact that Jesus is the king. This isn't just a message for those who are on the outside of the church, for those who are wrestling with who Jesus is and whether or not he can be trusted. Even many of us who sing about Jesus, who pray to Jesus, even many of us have to be brought back and made aware of how much we are sometimes conformed to the kingdoms of this world. We have to be reminded and shocked into how much of a threat Jesus can sometimes still feel toward us. You see, like Pilate, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us wants to rule and reign over our own lives. We want to be in charge. And in fact, we want to be in charge of the people that are closest to us so that their lives contribute to out to my happiness. I want to arrange the pieces on the chessboard. I want to make sure that everything is right. And that means that all of us at various points in our pilgrimage are tempted to silence the voice of Jesus. We don't want to listen to Jesus. We want to pursue our own versions of reality. We want to pursue our own truth. We want to convince ourselves that what Jesus says, His truth, well, that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply to this corner of my life. I'll give Him 90%. But there's this decision. There's this relationship. There's this passion. There's this desire. There's this work. There's this thing that I want to control. I don't want Jesus to claim kingship over it. All of us reach that point. So how do we turn? How do we bow the knee? How do we keep ourselves from being like Pilate? who ultimately silences that voice, how do we follow Jesus in the kingdom life that He is building? It begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer, which we recited this morning in the petition, Thy kingdom come. One of the things... The great Scottish preacher Alistair Begg he says one of the things we are asking when we pray this prayer is for God's sovereign rule to be increasingly established in our lives. We're praying that we might live in submission to his rule. And that's radically different from the way the world works, isn't it? In the world we value personal achievement. We value self-sufficiency. We value our own decision-making to guide our own lives. The world encourages us to believe that we are in control. But when God's kingdom comes, when we pray for Jesus to take His rightful place in our lives, Beg says a revolution takes place. Everything is turned upside down. The King of creation resides in our lives and begins conforming us into the image of His Son. And the Holy Spirit ministers to us by establishing God's kingly reign over every dimension of our lives. And you thought we were just reciting a prayer. You're actually asking God to take control Particularly of all of those places that you are white-knuckling it. Saying, I can't let go, but thy kingdom come. I don't want to let go, but thy kingdom come. It Begins with prayer. But after prayer, we have to honestly evaluate our lives. Do our actions, do our attitudes, do our behaviors, are we reflecting the otherworldly kingdom that Jesus is building? Here's the problem for all of us. We are conformed more and more into the image of this world if we're not trying to be conformed into the image of Jesus if we are not actively resisting the course of this world, you will be made more like the world. It requires you to look at your lives with brutal honesty and then ask God to uproot your life so that we can see the difference between the kingdom that Jesus is bringing And the kingdoms of this world, or our own personal kingdom. Friends, if Jesus doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, you're probably not listening to him. If Jesus doesn't make you feel uncomfortable with some of the decisions that you have made in your life, with the way that you are leading your life, you are probably not listening to his voice. We have to pray. For his kingdom to come. We have to evaluate the current state of our own lives. And third, and I think this is probably the hardest part. We actually have to follow Jesus. We have to follow Jesus into his kingdom. Rather than trying to build our own. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions this morning. What is Jesus calling on you to give up today? What is Jesus calling you to do? How is He calling you to spend your time and your money? In what practical, real world places is Jesus calling on you to take a stand? To be different from the kingdoms of this world. To show yourself and your family, your roommates, your workmates, others in your life, to show them that you do belong to a different kingdom. That you belong to a different reality. Folks, if the kingship of Jesus are merely words that we say, and are not followed by heartfelt action, then we are not actually following King Jesus. Jesus tells Pilate, this is why I've come. I've come to be this king. And before I threaten Rome, and before I threaten any other empire, you've got to deal with me personally. I've come to be your king. We're going to see next week that it will take his death to secure that kingship. And when we get to heaven, we will see a lamb as if he had been slain from before the foundations of the earth, still bearing in his body the marks of his suffering, the cost of His kingship. But today, today is the day to bow to the King. Today is the day to worship the King. Today is the day to see in His suffering Your great gain. Let's pray. Oh Father, it is so easy for us to see in the world or in other people the places where your kingship needs to be established. The places where you need to be king instead of some ism or a party or a policy, a decision that we don't like. It's so much harder for us to see where your claim of kingship and where Jesus' enthronement actually threatens us and disrupts us. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you do that merciful work so that we can turn and bow and worship the one who is the king of all the ages who is even now at work making all of his enemies his footstool until the day that he gives the kingdoms of this world as a gift to you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.